Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Welcome back everyone to Savage to Sage. This is Daniel, the host, and today I have the joy of being joined by Angie Stockland. Angie, I know you're doing a couple different things right now. You're a lecturer at Purdue, a mentor at Butler, and also an EIR at at Marietta. And you also had a recent exit in the last couple of years from OneClick. So I just wanted to welcome you to Savage the Sage. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about especially your journey over the last couple of years, and then we'll sort of go back from there. You exited from OneClick and then tell me what the process was of getting to where you are and what you're doing today. So we sold the Foster Grant in uh, July of 2018. And the idea at that point in time was to kind of stay on indefinitely. And I had a two-year contract. But after nine months, probably even before nine months, I realized that that was not going to be my future. It just, I was not cut out to be in the corporate world. And obviously, like when you've grown a business for, you know, 12 or 14 years and someone else then gets to make the final decision on some things, that's a very uncomfortable place to be. And so it didn't work out for me. And so after about nine months after the acquisition, I left and like, probably like the first Monday after I left, I woke up and I thought, okay, like I'm just used to grabbing my phone, checking to see like who needs me, what fire needs help, what can I do this morning? And like nobody needed me. And I knew it was going to be tough. And I started going to therapy once I decided to leave one click just because I knew it was going to be a tough transition. But I don't think I realized I understood the impact of like how I was giving back and getting fulfillment from my role as an entrepreneur and co-founder until I didn't have it anymore. So it probably took me a whole month to kind of take a breath and realize I was even holding my breath and to let loose and figure out, okay, what do I want to do with my life? And I kind of thought after a week, I might feel restless, but it really did probably take me a whole month just to like take a deep breath. So at that point in time, it was about figuring out like, what do I want to do moving forward? What gives me fulfillment? What am I good at? And so I just started having meetings literally with people from one click, like mentors in my life. And I just asked questions like, what do you think I'm good at? And how have I helped you in my life? And I started putting together the pieces to figure out like how I was going to move forward. That's awesome. So I would love to hear more maybe later in the show about if you're dreaming up another entrepreneurial venture, but maybe that's secret and we won't go there, but I am curious, but that's awesome too, of what you're doing now. It seems like just a lot of giving back to the entrepreneurial ecosystems and a couple of different universities. And I know you're involved, especially in Indiana and a lot of the entrepreneurial ecosystems. So is that fair to say like a quick overview of what you're up to now? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to stay involved in the entrepreneurship community. I was not ready to build something again right away, but I knew I had some expertise and some experience that other people could draw on. And so that's kind of what got me involved in the university setting. I also am an angel investor. So I have eight angel investments at the moment and I 
got fairly involved with the generator programs. And so I typically, you can find me in the G-Beta mentor swarms and investor swarms, and I'm on the board of the startup ladies. And so just like a wide variety of different like organizations and communities that I can kind of like dip my toes in to make sure that I can keep in touch with the up and comers and figure out how people are growing and scaling and how I can be of assistance. That's awesome. And you know, knowing how needed that is, the people that are receiving from you are definitely receiving a great gift. So that's great. On Savage to Stage, we like to look at the evolution of entrepreneurs. And so we know that the early days when you're first standing up a company, like in the early 2000s, when you were standing up one click, we call those the savage days. And people take a different definition depending on what it was like for them. But just curious what those early days when you first stood up the company, what was that like for you? How would you characterize those days? I mean, they were definitely intense. (laughs) I was married to my co-founder and we didn't have children and we made a choice to keep our full-time jobs, both of us. And so we would get up in the morning, work on one click for as long as needed. We would go to our full-time jobs, come home, and then work on one click in the evening and pretty much all weekend. So I would say the first year and a half or two years, we saw our friends and our family very little. We didn't go to the movies. We didn't go out to eat. We were literally just heads down trying to figure out like how to build a company and where we wanted to take it and how we wanted to scale and grow and like if we thought we could even do it. I don't even know if we realized how intense it was until we kind of got out of that cycle and had a chance to look back. That is intense. What was it that prompted you to do it, to jump in and especially with a full-time job on the side? Yeah. My co-founder was an entrepreneur like in every bone of his body. Randy was just born to be an entrepreneur. And when we got married, I didn't necessarily know that we were going to do it together. So it was a bit of a happy accident for me. But now that I'm a little older and I understand myself a little bit better, I know that I really enjoy like tangible goals and I enjoy a challenge. And so looking back, I think I was very intrigued by all of this like huge opportunity that we had in front of us and all these things that I got to learn and to kind of like test my skills and my talents at. I was interested and I think I was intrigued by just learning and growing and figuring out how to solve all the problems that were coming up every day. And we just ended up having very complementary skills. So I was an executor. He was a visionary. We could go on and on about that, right? But those complementary skills led to like a pretty strong team early on. Did you know that about yourself before you jumped into OneClick that you liked having those tangible goals in front of you and executing those? I don't even know if I really understood it until like the last couple of years. Got it. What else in terms of self-awareness did you learn? I I asked this question because I realized like a lot of entrepreneurs that get into it at the beginning are usually most of us are not very self-aware and it's kind of we have to learn through some painful lessons. I'm just curious, what were some of those lessons for you that really helped awaken you to your own self and what motivates you? I think one of the big ones is leadership, which every entrepreneur has to encounter at some point in time. And I think we spend so much time talking about ideas and talking about funding and all of like the cool stuff that you get to do when you have an idea and you're trying to get it off the ground. We don't spend enough time talking about team building and leadership. And I was the kind of kid through high school and college that was always involved in these leadership programs and leadership development. And I always thought it was a honestly just like a load of crap. Until I became an entrepreneur and probably a couple of years in, did I really like actually understand what leadership is and how 
to define myself as a leader and why it was important and why it was important for me to focus on it. Like leading up to that point, I really didn't understand leadership in general and what it really meant. I just kind of thought it was this thing that people talk about, but it wasn't real to me until probably I'd made a few mistakes along the way. Can you give an example if it's not too painful? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I think something a lot of us do, not all of us, but a lot of us do, especially in the Midwest, because we are such a nice community of people and you don't ever want to hurt anybody's feelings. Like I really, I know I didn't understand the impact of corrective feedback and I didn't know how to do that in a nice way. And so instead of doing it in a way that didn't feel nice to me, I just didn't do it at all. But that doesn't allow your team members to understand like how they can improve and get better and grow. And so people will come into our company and probably even leave our company and never understand why they weren't adding value. And it was up to me as a leader to talk about that with them and say like, hey, like you're really great at this, but we need to work on this skill or this skill. It took me a couple of years to figure out that was my responsibility. And it was actually a benefit to them for me to have those tough conversations with them. So it was a bit of an evolution for me to figure out like how to have a tough conversation, when to have it, and how to even approach it. A lot of times that's learned from someone exampling that for you and someone maybe that's a mentor or an advisor to you doing that. Did you have someone like that that helped you to learn how to do that? Or was it more of just like you were figuring it out because that was a necessary skill that you needed to build? I think there are some people in our lives that do it so well, like we don't even notice it. I think I had people that like just didn't do it at all and they were just like mean and then you just don't really listen to them because you don't have respect for them. Or you had people in your life that did it so well that it just felt natural and you didn't even notice it. And so it took reflection and intentionality on my part to kind of like look back and see those patterns and then try to emulate them moving forward. So in those early days, you know, you're learning a lot of these hard lessons, you're building a team, you're working on the weekends at night. Did you ever get to a place of burnout where I would just define it as like a loss of motivation, a loss of passion for what you're doing? Or did you always just have this spark and energy to keep going? <laughs> that is a good question. I mean, I'm three years removed now. Well, almost, like two and a half years removed from when I left. And so I think that I have a lot more clarity about the life cycle and what it was like than I did even in the moment. So looking back, I get to see that. We definitely, I personally definitely didn't have enough balance in my life in terms of like self-care and work. And part of it was just because I loved the company so much and I loved what I was doing so much that it didn't really feel like work. And so there were hard choices to make sometimes about like, you know, sometimes we couldn't go out with our family or we, we couldn't see somebody that was in town or those were individual choices that were painful in the moment, but passed quickly. But looking back, I realized that we did prioritize the company over ourselves probably too often. And there were periods of time where we may have gotten like a little bit better where we forced ourselves. One of the things that I realized along the way is if I want to be somebody that exercises on a regular basis, then I need to pay for a membership somewhere because that's the only way that I'm actually going to go do it is if I feel committed because I've paid the money and I'm also probably going to go with a friend. And so that was something I probably learned like mid journey, but there are a lot of things that make a lot more sense now that I'm out of that cycle than I even realized in the cycle. I've heard so many people describe it like that and think it's what it's about then, you know, is okay, what have I learned? And then 
how will I do things differently now and in the future? So that's good that you're recognizing that. I'm curious, you know, obviously a big part of an evolution for an entrepreneur is once you get out of those early days of savagery where you're just sort of doing it all yourself, it's building a team around you. And um, especially with those first people that you bring onto the team, you have to know like, okay, they really get it. They're catching on to the vision. They're really bought in, maybe literally, but as owners, in some cases, they really own themselves. Like, How did you find those people and then know, man, they're the people I need on this team? Well, I mean, part of it was trial and error, right? Like hiring people is such an art and a science. And I think it takes a lot of practice, but it's really expensive practice. <laughs> And obviously people's like livelihoods are at stake. So like part of it was just trial and error and figuring out how to ask better questions and how to get the right information. You'll probably laugh at this, but early on, because it was the, it was 2007, 2008, we found a ton of great people on Craigslist, which is not where you really find good talent anymore. But (laughs) we found like hires that were there for 10 years or longer, just on Craigslist early on. Wow. Yeah. Nice. But it is really hard, like you're talking about, when you're used to doing everything yourself, figuring out how to trust somebody else to run with your vision and really letting go and giving them responsibility and like really allowing them to do their job. It's difficult. It's a tough transition. Was there anything that really helped you the best with that transition? Probably just getting caught up in having to do everything myself. And I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. And I came to the realization probably later than most people that if I just let go of some things and trusted other people to do things, then I wouldn't be so stressed out all the time because I would have other people that are talented enough to take care of some of the things on my plate. That's a hard lesson to learn. I mean, for all of us, but especially from what you've described as like a doer yourself, someone that executes and wants to figure out how to do it, how to do it best. That's an especially difficult lesson to learn. So culture wise, it seems like from the outside looking in, I think I just met you like when you were on the tail end of your time at one click. But from what I gathered from you and some other folks that I've met that were there in the glory days, (laughs) it seemed like you had a really special culture there and a really tight knit group of people. And I'm curious, what was intentional about that? And then what just sort of happened? Yeah, it was all very intentional because at first it was completely unintentional. And we were naive enough to think that if we just set a good example and we hired people that seemed to have the same values as us, we didn't even talk about that, but I think that's probably what we thought, that the culture would just happen and it would just naturally evolve and we would set kind of the standard for everyone. And that is not what happened because we were very naive and we didn't understand how to build a company or culture. And so in 2009, I would say we sat down with the entire company and we set our mission and our core values. And then that continued to evolve over time and we got better at understanding exactly what needed to be in place. And I would say like the glory years, like you're talking about, we had a very nice structure that allowed people guardrails and then gave them a ton of autonomy to go do what they needed to do. And so when you have a mission and you have goals and objectives throughout the entire company that everybody is working towards the same goals and objectives, the same mission, and we're guided by the same core values, and then you give them permission to go meet their goals however they need to do it, 
it just creates this camaraderie that we're all in this together and it's all teamwork and nobody is better than anybody else. We didn't have a lot of egos in the company. And I think part of that was because we got better at hiring and you understand who's going to be okay in that culture and who's not going to be okay. And somebody that needs a corporate structure and like a list of things to do every day was not going to be comfortable in our organization. And so like you just get better at understanding who's going to be a good fit. You put those guardrails into place and then you let people just go do their thing. A lot of times, you know, you mentioned core values. A lot of times those are static posters on the walls. They're like historical artifacts that when we did this strategic planning session, we named these things and had this great time, but it's literally just a list of five things or seven things that define us. But in some cases we don't actually do, which a lot of companies, it was just an exercise And then in other cases, there wasn't a way to track how are the health of these values. I'm just curious if you could name like a couple of those values, if you can remember back that long ago, and just say, how did you monitor the health of those values and know like our team is doing well at these or maybe look at them as an entire company and kind of monitor those? Yeah, absolutely. So we had 10 core values and they did evolve a little bit over time, but people matter most was our number one core value. But we also had core values like never settle, went through teamwork, honesty and integrity. I could probably name all 10, but I'm not going to put myself on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) And so we highlighted a core value at every all company meeting, which was once a month and awarded somebody a prize that showcase that core value over the last month. And so we would read the nominations and choose a winner. We also scored each individual person in the company on the core values at their annual review and talked about it on a quarterly basis. And you would hear things in the office of just people talking about it. So for instance, I ran the customer service team. And so if we were talking about like, hey, should we tell the customer that or not? You'd hear somebody say like, well, honesty and integrity is one of our core values. And so you're like, oh, yeah, if you're getting checked by one of your employees about your actual core values, then you know that they're real. (laughs) It may gut punch you, but then you're like, actually, really appreciate that. On the other hand, I've heard, especially like you said, as you learn the hard way, sometimes you probably had some people that weren't living into the core values. And rather than like rehash that, I'm curious if you were talking to, let's say it's a G beta company now that's going through their program and they're asking you, hey, Angie, how do I both like hire for people that and figure out if people are a good cultural match? And then also, if someone's clearly not a cultural fit, and you know, isn't living into those values and doesn't have an intention to, how do you kindly remove that person? I'm just curious, like what advice you'd give based on your experience there? Because it's almost it seems like almost important for leaders to both be like celebrating how those values are being lived out, but then also seeing when they aren't or when someone isn't a match as well. I would say the first thing that you need to do is set your core values up to be actionable so that when you're talking about them, like you can showcase to someone how you expect them to like make decisions or behave along your core values. I think we had like two core values that weren't as actionable as the others and they were always really hard to explain to people. And so like make them actionable. Set up your interview questions around your core values. So ask behavioral questions so that people can prove to you like prove seems like a tough word, but prove to you like in past circumstances how they've showcased those core values. So like open and effective communication was one that we asked a lot of questions about. And it would just be things like 
tell me about a time you disagreed with your boss and how did you handle that situation? And so we wanted to see that someone was going to be okay and comfortable enough to confront their boss if they thought they were like going in the wrong direction or making a wrong decision and not just be the person who is quietly at their desk taking commands. So there wasn't necessarily a right or wrong answer, but you want to show that they've showcased your current core values in their past work or school performance. And then if they're not living up to their core values, then I definitely have examples of where we waited too long to address that. It then takes longer to correct after that person is gone. And so letting somebody go, it just never gets easier. It always feels awful. And so kind of like the quicker you can do it, probably the better for everybody. I've heard that mantra, hire slow, fire fast from so many leaders. And when I hear stories like you're sharing, it seems to ring more and more true. Because at the same time, I think especially being like, I hear you as a very redemptive person of like person that wants to give people second and third chances. But yeah, (laughs) at the same time, yeah, you have to make business decisions and decisions for the well-being of your team as well. So it sounds like you wrestled with that quite a bit. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, our very first core value is people matter most. And so you want to give every single person enough chances to like correct whatever behavior it is or like learn whatever skill they need to learn. But you also have to understand like one person isn't more important than the team as a whole. And so if that one person is causing more harm to the company or the team, then you can't just keep giving them chances. And that, I mean, that was a, that was a lesson I have to reteach myself a lot and had to at one click because you're right. Like you want to give somebody a lot of chances. Well, I want to spend the last, you know, five to 10 minutes just really digging into as you look over that journey of, you know, starting one click of exiting, what would be like the two key insights where you really learn about yourself the most and what shaped you the most? Like, I'll just give you a quick example for me. So I am not great at the separation of work and home and integrating work at home, especially in the last year and a half of like working from home. That's really hurt my marriage and family because it's like I'm mentally carrying my leadership and full stack and the various interactions that I've had throughout the day at home and replaying in my head as I'm trying to play with my daughter on the floor who's one years old. So that's one of those things that's like I've approached with a lot of curiosity about of like, hmm, you know, I wonder why that is. And then as I've really dug into that, in some cases with the help of trusted other people, I've figured out some, you know, here's how I can approach this differently so that I can leave work at work or leave it on my computer if it's at home and transition to to home. So I'm curious for you of like, what are those key pieces of growth and evolution that you've undergone through that journey that you carry with you today, you're advising people on today and like is something that you would carry with you and into the next venture? Well, I mean, I have a lot, but I would say one of the things that I learned about myself through this journey is how much validation I get from helping other people. I think I'm a two on the Enneagram scale, which means that I just get a lot of value and I feel valued when I can provide assistance to people. And so that's kind of helped shape what I'm doing now after one click. But it also kind of explains why as like a true introvert and someone who didn't understand leadership, I really loved like leading a team of people and working on a team like to solve problems and create solutions. 
I think another thing that I learned that I like to pass on to people and that I've taken with me after one click is just the value of listening and validating, especially early on as an entrepreneur, it's your baby and you're working on it full time and you're stressed out even if you don't realize it and you feel a lot of pressure. And if someone criticizes your decisions or what you've said or what you're doing, the first line of defense is to get defensive and convince them that they're wrong. (laughs) And so what I learned over the years, it generally wasn't about me as a person. And whatever somebody was bringing to my attention, they needed to feel heard and they needed to feel validated. And so like stepping back and making sure that I'm asking questions to understand and validating what they're saying and making sure they can get that off their chest and then taking the time to like really digest their feedback and figure out how I can get better and improve. That is one like key lesson that I think made me a better person and that I can continue to use today. It's so easy, especially when you're in that intense time of the business where you have to make quick decisions. A lot of times just like, oh, you're wrong, get defensive, move on, on to the next thing. And I think, like you said, your ability to really step back and be like, huh, you know, I'm going to pick through this, what they shared and really dig in and try to understand and then humbly figure out like, okay, what do I need to learn and grow? How do I need to learn and grow here? And then maybe almost discerning sometimes what is this person's, you know, stuff that they're bringing here that I don't have any control of, and, you know, they're going to need to figure out. So I think the ability to discern between the two and spend time with that is really important. So I like that. One of the final questions I like to ask and end on is what do you like to do that most recharges you? And is that something that is a recent thing that you figured out or have you known that and kind of done that thing to recharge for a while? So one of the things I love most is just to read. I love to read outside in my hammock. And this is something that I've done since I was little. Like I used to sneak books to bed and read with my flashlight under the covers, but I didn't do it as much when I was building and growing one click because I was so busy. I don't think I gave myself permission to take that long of a break. And so it's something that I've gotten back into in the last couple of years and something that I've like realized how much I missed. What are you reading these days? Mostly fiction. So I think I just finished book number 76 this morning. I love historical fiction. I love any kind of fiction. And then I'll throw in some memoirs and like a couple of business books a year. Any fiction books that I should be reading that you've read recently are just like, man, this knocked my socks off. Well, my favorite uh, fiction book of all time is The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. And every person that's read it after I recommended it has liked it. And so it's a pretty solid recommendation. All right. I'm taking notes right now. Yeah. All right. <laughs> have you read The Wildwood Chronicles by Colin Malloy? No. All right. I'm going to have to help change that as well. So okay. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write it down. Brilliant. Anyway, that's awesome. And I know, especially when you're in the intensity of business and also just facing reality of like inner stuff that we're working on ourselves, you know, seeing what's happening in the world. I think fiction can be such a great, not necessarily escape, but just a chance to enter into a a different world and to, to really recharge. So that's awesome. And I love that connection of like, that's something that you did as a kid and that you're rediscovered now. Cause I think one of those things I've realized as I've asked that question is a lot of times, like some people have to rediscover For example, I used to walk in the woods, you know, when I was a kid and that was like my lifeline, but it was because the woods was right in my backyard. I grew up in a very rural area. So now I've had to work a little bit harder to 
you know, to find those woods because I live in the middle of the city. Those activities are so essential for us to recharge our soul and to keep that going. Absolutely. And even though that I'm reading fiction books, I've learned over the last couple of years that I love reading from different perspectives. So people that aren't like white middle-aged women that live in Indiana. So like reading from different countries or different backgrounds and experiences, different decades. Like it's really fun to dig into somebody else's experience for a while. Yeah, love it. I really appreciate your time today. And if people that have listened, you know, want to get in touch with you, where would you point them? Well, you can always find me on Twitter at Easterday77, or you can find me on LinkedIn at Andrew Stocklin. Awesome, Angie. Well, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your story. I really appreciate talking with you. Thanks, Daniel. It's been great. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.